0: Hi, welcome to the very first episode of New Books in British Studies, the podcast channel where we interview authors working in the exciting and diverse fields that make up British studies. I'm your host, Christina Fryer. Today we're talking with Caroline Shaw, author of the timely new book, Britannia's Embrace, Modern Humanitarianism and the Imperial Origins of Refugee Relief, published by Oxford University Press in 2015. Britannia's Embrace traces how, in Britain, a moral commitment to providing refuge developed during the long 19th century, leading to a dramatic expansion of the refugee category. This moral commitment remains strong even in the face of limited resources and political obstacles. I hope you enjoy the interview. Hello and welcome to the first episode of New Books in British Studies. Uh, I am your host, Christina Fryer, and today we are speaking with Caroline Shaw, uh, assistant professor at Bates, um, and we're talking about her new book, Britannia's Embrace, Modern Humanitarianism and the Imperial Origins of Refugee Relief, published with Oxford University Press in 2015. Caroline, welcome to New Books in British History thanks. or British Studies, I should say.
1: Thanks <laughs> and thanks for welcoming me on.
0: Um, so let's start with the sort of general questions that we ask. Um, so first, what led you to become a historian?
1: Mm -hmm. Good question. Like, in some ways, I've always been vetting other careers against becoming a historian, Uh, (laughs) but uh, a long fascination with the past and a deep desire to imagine what life was like um, in different moments, in different places, probably, but more particularly um, my undergraduate career, certainly at Hopkins. I went in as a Knowing that I would be a history major, but the the questions that I was asked in um, my version of the the modern European history class that I took my freshman year asked, you know, or well, supposed, you know, why, you know, Britain was the closest to what was going to be to a nineteenth century revolution in eighteen nineteen, but it didn't happen, and I was hooked. I kept working on that puzzle, which I learned subsequently that many people had been working on for. <laughs> over 100 years probably at that point, Um, I was hooked in trying to figure that out. And really from there, that got me further into history, history as a graduate career option, um, and um, and probably British history more particularly as well.
0: So then tell us how you came to this specific project about uh, refugees.
1: Well, by the time I was at Berkeley, I was still in a way thinking with, the question, the comparative question of how Britain reacted to foreign revolutions and I was quite interested in the international news I went into my pre-dissertation research summer trying to figure out what that topic would look like Sort of sniffing around 1848 and British reactions to an array of conflicts at that point and I was very interested in trying to figure out how to measure that how do we measure their response what does it mean, what does it do um, I was also interested in and didn't quite know how they connected at that point humanitarianism um and more broadly moral commitments to storytelling and that storytelling is elements both in the international news and in humanitarianism and I found as I was sifting through the the potential archives that refugees were all over the place, and we didn't know anything about them right um the story goes. We know. We know Marx was in Britain. We know Bolivar. We know all of these various nineteenth-century greats from elsewhere were in Britain at various points, as well as certainly many, many unknown um, uh, revolutionaries and others forced to flee uh, their countries as well. So, what was that history? And uh, the deeper I got into that, the more I wanted to to tell that story.
0: That sounds. That sounds like a fascinating way, and sort of an actually. Uh, not intuitive way of of getting to the project, which I think we actually see in the very creative way that you have approached the project in in the book. So um, as I see it, Britannia's Embrace uh, traces uh, two things. Uh, First, the emergence of the category of the refugee, which you argue over the course of uh, the time period that you're focusing on, uh, becomes potentially universal in scope. Uh, the second thing that you're tracing is um, the moral commitment to providing uh, refuge for persecuted foreigners. Um, so could you tell us what you mean by uh, moral commitment? It's a pretty critical concept throughout the book.
1: right? Certainly. Um, and I would start just by backtracking a moment to sure. say that I think your, your two tracks in the book I think are absolutely fair, um, the right ones that I'm tracing. The two are interconnected. Of course. Uh, and very much that the, much of that, what I'm going to explain as that moral commitment comes out of their ability to see it through. So that moral commitment, their ability to see it through. And with that, the potential universalization of the category itself. That if they had started out with... Um, limited means they might have remained at a, a definition of refugee that was more or less tied to Protestant mm. as it was for much of the 18th century, uh, through the much of the 18th century. Um, so by moral commitment, what I mean is, uh, an interest and that interest is diffuse, but also articulated at the national level by policymakers, as well as people lobbying the government. Um, commitment to provide refuge and commitment to help those who are persecuted overseas. And by overseas, in this case, my refugees are all foreign. They're not coming from within the British Empire, um, but from, from other conflicts uh, further afield. And that moral commitment, um, I argue here, it starts in with a sense of raison d'etat. There is a reason for it. Um, and I think that while that immediate reason of the Protestant nation trying to take in Protestant refugees that you get in the 18th century does drop away, that moral commitment is always tied to Britain's notions of themselves. That going into the 19th century, they um, they continue to to find themselves committed and recommitted in an increasingly broad sense to people who who can have claims as refugees who can ascribe themselves to this broadening category because these people in this category matches what Britain sees as, or Britain see as their, their, um, their new raison d'etre and raison d'etat, that being the creation of a liberal modernity and an attempt to, to instantiate what that looks like for them in that moment. Right. Across the, gro- the globe.
0: Right. Um, and I wanted to sort of backtrack a little bit, um, as you're tracking the, this uh, development of a moral commitment to refuge um, in Britain, um, I think the question also is raised, and you, you talk about this in the introduction, um, of why is this a particularly British story? I think there's a claim here that, um, that Britain has a particularly important role to play in the creation of this category. Could you explain why Britain and why, uh, why, uh, why not other places like France or the United States?
1: Certainly. And there there are two reasons, really. One is uh, sort of a broad rhetorical reason, and one is just sort of pragmatic.
0: Um, In a
1: pragmatic sense, Britain is is the one place that remains open to foreigners consistently throughout. So while, for instance, in the 1790s, refugees, especially from uh, Eastern Europe, from Poland more particularly, will make their way to, to France, revolutionary France that stops, that shifts with every French government, right? So there isn't a consistency there. Um, With the United States, there is the potential for consistency. Once you start talking about refugee slaves, of course that looks very different pre-Civil War. Um, uh, With Britain, again, it's more consistent. Um, And conceptually, vis-a-vis the United States, more particularly the United States, the language of the Asylum for Mankind as Tom Paine's term for it in the 18th century, very quickly becomes one wrapped up in immigration more lo- writ large in a way that doesn't classically distinguish, since it is a country of immigration, um, it doesn't distinguish between refugee, uh, immigrant for other reason as closely as the British
0: do. Interesting. So
1: the way that the British create it. Is actually in a slightly more narrow sense, but at the same time more specific to the refugee category, and again more consistent than, for instance, the French, the Dutch, the Swiss, etc.
0: Interesting. Uh, thank you for that. So, as the the book the book has uh, has eight chapters plus an introduction and conclusion, um, and there are really three phases that you are uh, tracking here. First, the creation and development of this moral commitment. Uh, The second phase is the implementation of refugee relief uh, as really driven by this moral commitment um, and also the attendant challenges to implementing refugee relief. Um, And then finally uh, the legal enshrinement of uh, of a right uh, right of refuge or right to refuge, I should say, um, that as you note, at the same time that this right is being legally uh, enshrined, the category of who qualifies to be a refugee is actually shrinking. Um, So if we can, uh, let's start with this uh, sort of first phase, um, the creation of the moral commitment to uh, to uh, providing refuge. Um, And you locate that first um, in the shift in what you refer to as uh, confessional logic or the elimination of the confessional logic. Um, Can you uh, take us through uh, basically what's happening in Chapter one, where you move from the Huguenots um, all the way up to the French Revolution?
1: Certainly. And actually, if I could just flag something before those listeners who I know are going to say, wait, a right to refuge isn't a right to refuge. There now is a right to seek asylum, but not a right to receive it. Mm -hmm. And actually, one of the things that I'm sure we'll wind up highlighting, but there is actually a more strictly articulated right to at various moments in British history in the 19th century, even though certainly now international law, there is no explicit right to this. So um, just to. To right. That before, before we go, have absolutely. Go Thanks for
0: that. I'll make sure that we that we come back to that issue.
1: Yeah, but, um, but back to the 18th century. Yeah. So what what happens? The shift of the Huguenots, um, as I mentioned briefly before, you know, uh, the uh, the Huguenots are the original refugees. They are French Protestants. They bring the term refugee, though they've been coming to 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 Britain as to other uh, Protestant European countries for. A couple centuries by this point, when persecuted in Catholic countries, um, they bring the term with them after the revocation of the Edict of Nantes in 1685. So it's not as so though they're the first people who would broadly could be ascribed to the refugee category, but this is the first instance in which we really have um, that that label. Um, Britain, being a Protestant nation um, and one in the throes of its own, uh, or just following its own civil war and now in the throes about to be in the throes of its glorious revolution, these huge become very quickly wrapped up in that Protestant raison, raison d'etre, uh, d'etre, a way of, of seeking a litmus test in terms of commitment to a Protestantism as opposed to a Catholicism, which many people at the time of the revocation, James, uh, James is already on the throne and he is uh, known to be a Catholic, and the concern is certainly that he is, is very much um, indebted to Louis Fourteenth the of France. So what his reaction is going to be and what the state's reaction more broadly is going to be to these Huguenots becomes a major thing. So providing relief in this respect, which, which certainly is going on at the state level as well as at the the, the parish and, and individual levels through the Protestant churches of, of uh Within, the United, uh, within, um, within Britain um, is really part of that. That continues in a, in a significant way throughout much of the 18th century. The last Huguenots actually to be on, uh, the treasury rolls are on into the 19th century. Um, so that, that legacy continues on. By the time we get to the French Revolution, though, this has to shift. The people starting to come over are actually Catholic, right? Right. Um, so while one could argue that Britain is is less hyper-confessional, certainly by the end of the 18th century, there's there are arguments afoot about trying to. Um, Trying to scale back on the Catholic disabilities already, uh, but they are still very popularly anti-Catholic, especially yeah, you know, uh, especially when, once you get away from a you know certain Londoner philanthropic elites. Um, but this campaign to help both the emigre priests fleeing uh, the revolutionary government in France as well as the lay people really takes on a national bent very quickly in the early 1790s and they um the commitment there is still a commitment to state but it's the a re- a commitment to the states aims to withstand revolution itself so it switches from that confessional to the ideological to right. the political um to a new uh, existential threat that dovetails well with uh, an argument Increasing throughout the 18th century, and certainly not you know, sort of new to this moment, about uh, the need for for new philanthropies, new charitable organizations that, that dovetail with this raison d'etre, and um, and uh, and a uh, a need for to helping these particular individuals.
0: Right. And you also uh, point out in this uh, in this chapter particularly as we are as we're moving into the French Revolution um and with these émigré priests um that there's also an enormous amount of concern about making sure that the people who are uh claiming refuge, you know, it, it for some people it's bad enough that they're Catholic, but there's concern that they could be bringing radical ideas with them, that they could be Jacobin spies. Um can you talk a little bit about the vetting process uh processes that emerged during this period? Cuz I think they that idea of vetting also is, is very much tied to, um, tied to refugee relief once we move past the Huguenots.
1: Right. Absolutely. Um, and the vetting process is by this point and will remain into the 19th century, very heavily tied on other foreign nationals. So some of the bishops, some of the the higher ups in the, the Catholic uh, establishment from France who are in London, um, and it's certainly members of the the French aristocracy help initially, especially by vetting who's there. OK, well, here's here's how we know who they are. We don't necessarily know them personally, but somebody else knows them. Again, a very for, a formalized informal network of, of trying to vet people. There is also, you know, certainly there's a hefty dose of um, spying, especially not as I don't do as much of this with the. Uh, the 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 Huguenots, excuse me, with the emigres in the 1790s, but certainly later on, um, the home office is very concerned of just making sure, okay, these are, you know, these, these might be revolutionaries by the later 19th century. We're talking anarchists, we're talking mm-hmm. earlier than that, the, the democratic socialists coming from across Europe. They might be radical, but they're not doing anything. So the vetting process happens at that level as well, and certainly at the higher up. And a lot of the relief efforts are doled out, um, via the treasury in the 1790s. Um, but they, they go again as they did with the Huguenots through established means such that the people handing them out are sort of part of this process all along and vetting it with the, um, the emigres more particularly and they the, they're the last to be forced into this category of serving the British state. Right. Um, part of that sense of existential threat. um, that they, they, um, the, the lay emigres are forced, the men are increasingly forced into the army um, throughout the 1790s to go back to France to fight that effort. And relief is, for their whole families in many ways, tied to that. So that vetting process happens there as well. Are, are you really going to go fight? And it's really dire circumstances because if they were captured in France, they would be um, pretty much summarily executed. Right.
0: right. And you you notice or you note I should say um, that uh, this happens the, the, there's a particularly dire instance of this uh, at quiberon where uh, a, where an enormous number of people are uh, summarily executed um, as a result um, and and if I'm uh, remembering correctly, you argue um, that it's sort of after that moment that the idea of this sort of quid pro quo uh, relief or refuge I should say for uh, military service really starts to fall off.
1: Yeah, that, that, um, it's becomes really hard to make that a, di- a necessity. Um, and certainly, as I mentioned, there's always been this more, um, humanitarian element, more, th- more philanthropically driven point, too, that has tied itself with the state and has worked together. But I think that element, the purely philanthropic, really takes over. Um That said people who who do serve the British throughout the Napoleonic Wars, et etc, do get particular pensions that are separate though equivalent to the refugee relief that that um, that happens through other means uh including the state um so the, that that um, that service to the British state in that respect drops off slowly, but this is really think, the major turning point
0: right. So in uh, chapter two, you uh, sort of move into uh, the 19th uh, century more fully, um, basically sort of picking up after uh, the Congress of uh, Vienna. Um, And one of the things that you note is that refuge in certain ways is almost kind of a consolation prize or an acknowledgement that um, Britain cannot be actively intervening in all of these particularly continental um, uh, revolutions or continental uh, conflicts, um, and so foreign intervention uh, is not really uh, a possibility, and so refuge sort of comes in to to be the sort of act of humanitarianism that Britain can do. Uh, can you uh, walk us through this development
1: yeah well, so the the Congress of Vienna brought with it i 'm um, sure many in the audience know you know major uh, Defeat for a nascent liberal cause. It's the conservatives that are returned to the thrones. The Congress of Vienna also brought with it the first international debates for ending the international slave trade, right. um, as well. Both of these brought, you know, a triumph on the one hand and a you know sort of a loss on the other. For you know, brought with it um, new commitments. Um, so certainly, the British couldn't intervene overseas and didn't want necessarily to intervene, certainly the foreign office, as uh, Davidei Rodonio has recently looked at. You know, the foreign office doesn't really want to intervene in a lot of affairs, including that in Greece, which they wind up getting involved with in the, the later 1820s. Um, but though they can't do that, though they can't see sort of that cause of liberty, that cause of a fight against uh, against despotism, uh, as they see it uh, eliminated, they still can help the people who are fleeing it. All right, so this is where that turn to refuge comes in, and um, it becomes something of that consolation process. It also becomes something of a a placeholder, if you will. Right, mm-hmm. you know we can't intervene now, but through refugees, that sort of ultimate look at an alternate future maybe one day we can see this coming through. So our friendship, our help with refugees, which you see both you know, to some degree with uh, the state, but more particularly with um, uh, emerging uh, liberal and, and radical uh, associations trying to take on these mantles of continental freedom, uh, right. European freedom, um, and seeing this through, seeing this through refugees uh, and through the aid of refugees. In terms of the other track of this, that the Congress of Vienna brought with it, the discussions of the end of slavery, uh, international slave trade, say okay, that with that comes the understanding that you are going to wind up with ships that are actually trafficking illegal slaves.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So the question and the obligation that gets incurred is one here actually that's done by treaty, right? So by all these slave trade, anti-slave trade treaties the question of what happens with those people who are caught up in it who need to be freed somewhere and can't realistically be brought back home as though the British sort of can figure this out more particularly, they needed to be figured, it needs to be figured out where refuge can happen. So that's more uh, treaty obligated um, refuge, again, that's by these these multiple bilateral treaties that happen uh, following the Congress of Vienna about the slave trade. And then the other more diffuse, sort of romanticized loss. Of liberty on the continent, uh, in terms of the continental refugees.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things you highlight in this chapter is that um, you, you suggest that the the base of support for uh, providing uh, refugee relief um, is actually broader than we have uh, ex- uh, that we have previously understood. Uh, you refer to you, you uh, suggest that this is actually a cross class, um, a broad base of support. Um, can you talk about? Uh, what the previous understanding in the literature was, um, and how you were able to uh, demonstrate this broader base of support.
1: Sure. Um, previously in the literature, especially for the earlier emigres, you tend to talk about the elite, mm. um, and certainly um, people on the orders of a uh, you know Fanny um, people who have these these connections, um, and Edmund Burke, um, people who are you know very much at that upper echelon um what you see increasingly is an involvement uh, among a, a newer middle class and especially also at least uh, in a uh, uh, not not, uh, not the broad working class but in a sort of an elite part of the working class at the very least claiming and uh, espousing that their involvement with refugees is you know is is significant and making a claim on that as a way of as, is both um, taking common cause with many of the refugees, but also claiming their, their um, share in this national, this national burden, the international humanitarian burden as well. And the way I, I draw this out and look at it is, is often through the, the, um, the relief lists of the various societies. Every single, soci- every single refugee group in, in a way, you could say every disaster, too, overseas, mm-hmm. but certainly all of the refugees coming through, uh, be that the fugitive slaves who don't always come through, they're often in Canada, be that um, be that the uh, more democratic Polish nationalists later on, be that the French, be that the Italians, et cetera, have their relief societies. And these relief societies are a who's who of... Certainly of high society, but then also of a uh, broader a uh, broader class base as well. So some of them you see as more middle class oriented. Certainly the ones claiming to be working class look broadly like they're drawing on um, a chartist elite, but B, also that they're going into these communities and trying to 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 drum up the support more broadly. So one, one example of that in the 1851 attempt to help the, the Hungarian, um, the, this is the Poles who had been helping the Hungarian cause who tended to be more democratic than the elite Hungarians coming through. And there was a question as to whether or not the, the, um, the government and certainly the local elite were going to help them in their refuge or just essentially ship them over to America, which is what happened to many of them. But, uh, those who are trying to, to help them claiming a working class affiliation will have relief scrolls that, that say, well, said factory, said place of work contributed mm-hmm. X amount together, right? So you'll see that grouping together, mm-hmm. you know, assuming that you know, they're all contributing a little bit or, or even just you know, a shilling several of them together to then contribute to what in this particular case was a shilling for European freedom showing subscription to European freedom and they get their certificate right. that was touted in the, the various, um, various radical newspapers as, you know, a sort of the thing to have.
0: Well, that's fascinating. And, and I can, I can basically imagine, you know, at the workplace, at the factory, uh, people, um, sort of pressing their case that this is a cause that we really should support, um, and sort of gathering, uh, up a collection. Uh, there's something really evocative, uh, about that. Um, the I mean there 's so much rich material throughout this book, but I think chapter three for me is uh is particularly fascinating um, and here you 're tracking the uh, uh, refugee narrative genre. Um, both what it actually looks like and the way that that it it sort of creates almost a standard template for how people understand refugees, um, and at the same time how that then mobilizes, or how, how that those narratives are used to mobilize actual campaigns to provide relief. And here we're shifting into phase two, uh, which is sort of the implementation of. Uh, refugee relief, the actual on-the-ground providing of aid, um, and the challenges that approach it. So could you talk us through uh, the refugee narrative genre uh, and what it looks like, and then we can move into how that helped mobilize campaigns?
1: Sure, certainly. Um, As a genre, I should say first that this is something that I've seen echoed in newspaper accounts these various philanthropic societies, the stories that especially elite refugees who can speak English speak for themselves, as well as those speaking for them, as is often the case on the, in the various meetings that are gotten up in their, their relief. So this is what I'm drawing on when I look at, at the this genre that really emerges um, in the early half of the uh, first half of the 19th century. The genre is remarkable in that it's, it's task is to tell it's tell a couple of stories. One, it's a story about why the British should camp. Mm-hmm. Right? It's to make those claims about persecution, persecution of the innocent, that these people are innocent, even if they're fighting, that they're, you know, they're very much, they're, they're doing what they need to do. They're heroic, unlike what we will later think about as refugees is tending to be gendered. A Female intending to be passive victims these are these are fighters right and this becomes part of this genre The innocent part of this as well is that there's a lot of suffering Going on at home, right? So their their families are, are very much suffering this again. This is this um, Narrative of suffering and attempting to overcome persecution. So this is so why do we care what are the, these refugees doing to try to change their situations, part of this narrative? And why why the Britin, R- British in particular ought to be the ones to come to their aid, right? So there's this th- that pitch, too. And that pitch is, you know, is done in a couple of ways, that these refugees are doing all that they can in their exile. They love their British hosts. It's a classic, you know, of course, they have to say something like this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this to, to their would-be hosts um, and supporters, uh, and that they're doing all that they can to work in exile despite their suffering. So there's an element of hard work that's something of a, um, that becomes more important later, but that is uh, an undercurrent in all of these categories, that whatever their class station that they fall in. And that we, only you know, always sort of, they're meant to pity them, of course, and to identify with them, and also to see that they're doing everything that they can, mm-hmm. and that this this British help, the British to the rescue, is that sort of last portion of these refugee narratives, is the opening for for those to then give or you know, help to, to help to provide these relief, this relief.
0: And I imagine that this this claim that. Um, that they are uh, hard working um is also particularly important in the 1820s 1830s 1840s as the language about uh, who deserves relief more broadly um, is really shifting to this conversation about the deserving poor and the undeserving poor. It certainly will not do if refugees arrive and are quickly becoming quote unquote undeserving poor because they you know they aren't working or because they're becoming a drain on the state
1: really right. and and I think that's that's huge in the refugee narrative to articulate. It's even more important to be able to articulate that as a way of saying as part of saying that look, no, these were refugees or these, we are, or these are depending on the the construction of the narrative Mm -hmm. uh, who, who have been persecuted. We're not immigrants, right? Right. British law in this moment doesn't distinguish between anybody coming in. It's not vetting who can come in. The refugee as a category is this category created culturally in these moments distinguished from those people who are, who are otherwise seeming to be long-term immigrants. That's, in part, to, just to foreshadow, that's the irony that I pick up in the next chapter, that, of course, many of these people constructing those, who are refugees, who have been persecuted and flee for those reasons, have to look for a long durée of exile, right. have to essentially become immigrants themselves, even though this refugee narrative so closely tracks you know, the, the, re- the ways in which they aren't your classic, you know, just migrant or foreigner of any sort.
0: So how did uh, these refugee relief campaigns work? So once we have a certain level of moral outrage um, being ginned up by these uh, refugee, uh, by these refugee narratives, um, how does it actually, what does relief actually look like on the ground in Britain in particular? And then of course, in the remaining uh, chapters of this section, we'll shift to uh, abroad. Right. right,
1: right. Um, in Britain, it, um, it takes the form fairly quickly of protest meetings, protest against the evil overseas. Um, it becomes quickly so meetings become concerts; they become all these other things as well as time goes on. But initially, that public demonstration of outrage at what's going on that often very much comes along with with sort of two things: one, on the ground, it comes along with immediate relief and sort of collecting of or, or promising the getting up of a committee. Um, to help with the, the refugees themselves if they're there. Or it also be, comes with a dissemination of the proceedings of these meetings in the, the various news outlets across across the British Isles. So in a way, though, this might be happening in Southampton or in Liverpool or London, that this news gets carried elsewhere. And the hope then is that, that more people actually contribute as well. What happens? and let me walk you through a particular case um, to go back to the so the, the Poles who had been supporting the Hungarian cause.
0: Absolutely.
1: And <laughs> Liverpool, because I think this also gets to some of the divisiveness of some of these campaigns as well. It's not to say that everybody, everybody might be abstractly on board with, uh, an expanding refugee category, but not exactly with how they should be provided with relief. So the Poles come in, they arrive, um, in 1850, in 1851, and the, the question is whether or not they ought to, be be able to stay there. So what happens is is twofold. One, local officials go on board um, the ships and, you know, talk talk to them. And then again, in the barracks where they stay uh, uh, on shore, they look, you know, we'll provide you with passage to America, you know, continue on. And they see this as the, as as actually sort of the celebration, you know, this is British refuge too, right? It's transportation, (laughs) right? They don't see any problems with that. This is the, the moment in which especially the um, well, chartist outlets see a problem in this and want to make this more of a political gambit for the, the, um, the poor polls, the more radical Democrats who are not being treated as well as the elite refugees. And what they do is get up a campaign to disseminate groups of refugees to various towns, especially throughout the north of England. Uh, wherein in each town the refugees would be provided with um, work and support and people essentially sponsoring them um, in a way very similar to what we, you know, we can think about now in the way that refugees are often um, dispersed throughout various
0: places. Right. And I
1: think the point I would just add to that sure. is that thanks to work like that of Laura Tabili's uh, new work on the provinces, she particularly looks at uh, if memory serves Sheffield um, and North Shields, they serve the northern area, that she um, she finds that the, the makeup, the social makeup of these areas is much more cosmopolitan than we would ever assume. So when we think of the Britons and the people who are sort of reaching out and, and welcoming refugees in, we have to have a picture of a world in which Yes, these people are coming from elsewhere. Yes, they might seem more foreign at the moment, but there is also that engagement not only with what's happening outside but uh outside Britain but also with um with different populations within a more cosmopolitan
0: uh center. Right. So um in chapters uh, four and five, you move into sort of the imperial portion of, of uh, refugee relief. And um, in this, the inaugural episode of, uh, of New Books in British Studies, um, I think for me, one of the things that's always so fascinating about Britain, and particularly Britain as an imperial power, is just how tiny the country itself actually is. And this is something that I always emphasize to students, um, just how tiny Britain is. And we, we see this issue of Britain's small size emerging um, when it comes to refugee relief. There simply is not remotely enough space, um, enough resources. There's certainly not enough work um for all of the refugees uh streaming in from the continent uh in particular or refugee uh, or fugitive slaves i should say uh to be resettled in britain proper um so the empire or not simply the the uh formal empire but also the informal empire places where britain has influence um become critical valves of uh basically migration out of britain for many of these uh, refugees. Um, so can you walk us through um, this this idea that you first talk about in Chapter 4 of overseas refuge, uh, which seems to sustain the moral commitment to refuge by making it, in fact, feasible?
1: right? Um, and this is going back to the sort of earlier point that we were talking about in terms of the moral commitment and the categories right. being tied very much to the resources by which they can provide refuge, which is certainly... Um, uh, resources within the British Isles, but then critically outside as well. And this this move to, to empire to a transmigration approach to to refuge goes back and goes back to the the, the quote unquote lower class Protestants coming in from from Salzburg and yeah, the Salzburger uh, and the the Palatine mm-hmm. areas um, in the in the early eighteenth century um, when they were essentially sort of encouraged quickly to go out to the, the colonies at that point, to the, to the Americas, um, this continues and becomes even more of a thing. And I think the first point that I would want to highlight with this, with this turn towards Emperor, the use of empire and informal empire in this respect, is that it's steeped in a number of things, but primarily often a real fear that they can't accommodate people in Britain. Not always the reality that they can't. But from the the time of the emigres a fear that anti Catholicism is really gonna get going. Um, fears with the Huguenots lasted through the eighteen thirties, you know, and, and, and a little bit beyond as well as to what the, the competition uh with uh with various um uh workers in Britain looked like. So fears of competition, in some cases of course real competition. Um, and then fear of numbers, if not always actual numbers, really makes this overseas outlet viable. So what we're talking about are, you know, the Americas even after independence, Canada certainly continuing. Um, we're talking a lot about, um, about for, for, um, for both fugitive slaves and for, um, liberated Africans, talking about Sierra Leone. For American fugitive slaves, at least in one high-profile case, we're talking about Liberia, mm-hmm. um, and then we're talking East Africa, we're talking um, Palestine, um, et cetera, uh, and the the list goes on and continues to expand in the nineteenth, the twentieth century as well. Um, but the, the these places are both places where the the refuge providers, as well as many of the refugees themselves, to think that they're going to have a better chance, and this is very much tied to the the British, the the domestic narrative about a social safety valve too. So you know there there is a, a domestic equivalent to that, vis-a-vis um, the British in the nineteenth century, as well looking for that safety valve in the empire. So they're meant to be able to set up for themselves to become in this, in this true quintessential liberal fashion to become self sustaining self-regulating right. groups. Um, the people who are targeted for this transmigration is broad it 's often very often about race and that, you know, you know, race and um, and increasingly later in the nineteenth century, an attempt to be about religion too going back to um, and going to the Jews as well but it 's about class, about politics and you know as I said about religion, so the emigre priests they're encouraged to go to Quebec because that 's a Catholic place, right. They don't wind up going because conquered concordat with the Pope happens soon enough that they're able to go back to France. Um, but this is a way, again, that long-term refuge seems more feasible and becomes celebrated, in part because of missionary narratives in places like Sierra Leone that tout the successes, mm-hmm. despite some very obvious failures in in Sierra Leone, um, but that really enable it to seem like this is worth. And enable it to for people at home to assume that this is really British refugee, and this is something that works seamlessly enough that we we can celebrate what we're doing, and you know certainly continue it. Mm-hmm.
0: And it seems, in fact, that it it, it it the the idea for or or what Britons at home take away is that it's working so seamlessly, in fact, um, that it is worth. Um, encouraging metropolitan intervention in instances where it it becomes publicly known that it is not working. Uh, And you have two cases here in Chapter 5 uh, of Malta uh, and uh, a case in Canada in which uh, there's pretty significant metropolitan intervention into the affairs of these colonies in order to preserve um, the idea, at least, that uh, refuge, overseas refuge, is possible. Um, do you want to pick one of those? Whichever one you, whichever one is most interesting to you today. I love
1: both of them. I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, and there was a third that I actually took out of the book. Oh. Uh, I hope to come back to at some point later, and not in the interview and in writing. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll pick the, the Anderson case. Okay, I think he has you know reach and to- speaks. As well to this question of the long durée of exile, as well given what happens to him. So Anderson is um, an American fugitive slave. He flees Missouri in 1854. Um, he so this is as, as the fugitive slave law of the United States is in in place. So anybody just fleeing to the north is is not safe from recapture and return. He manages to flee to Canada, but en route. He kills a man he kills a slave catcher now this is the test case that the the abolitionists in particular have been waiting for uh, to test both Britain's commitment to abolitionism to an international abolitionism and um, and and in a way to test this power of refuge itself this comes on the heels of Harriet Beecher Stowe's call to Certainly, an American public, but a British public as well. The book was quite popular there and had many spin-offs. That the fugitive slave who defends himself, in her case, George Harris, uh, fictional George Harris, becomes the real John Anderson. Right. And she basically she makes the claim that this is this person is no different than a Hungarian nobleman, and part of this broad, um, broad hat refugee cat in the refugee category that it is meant to be potentially universal. Right. So here's the test case: Is it universal? What does it do you know, in one of the test cases? So um, Anderson lives in Canada for, for some time, undetected, but he is detected in 1860. And the question becomes whether or not he can be extradited to the United States to face trial. Um, this becomes a big to-do on both sides of the Atlantic because Canada, you know, for three reasons, really, you know, one certainly the, the test case that it provides, But also, this is about Britain interceding in Canadian affairs. Canada, by this point, is on its course to become um, more independent. It has a a seemingly separate uh, court system. So whether or not the British can impede on this from London, from Whitehall and and basically tell either tell the Canadians what to rule or bring him back to London as the question was, whether to use a writ of habeas corpus, bring him to London, try him there where he's going to get off and keep him free. And the case winds up ending on a technicality, sort of fortunately for all of the various parties involved, but they're really trying to think about okay, well what does this mean in a real international sense? And it has, and, you know, again it it gives the sense that, you know, this This moral commitment is deep enough that they're willing to to potentially go to the the ends and intercede in Canada. Um, Lawyers are very relieved that this doesn't become the precedent. And, of course, in this particular venue, the American Civil War breaking out within months means that they don't have to look further than this. But what it raises for me, looking forward, and then I want to look. Backward, I guess, as well. Okay. Looking forward, it raises for me a question of what happens when these refugees, um, here a refugee slave, has blood on his or her hands, right? And they always have. But what blood is, is palatable, right? Romantic revolutionaries on one hand, but then we're, we're going to get very shortly to the anarchists. Right. With others who the British don't want to concede are refugees or could be refugees, the Irish Fenians, Right. So this raises a very uncomfortable family of resemblances, in how people think about what refuge is and how it can be safeguarded, Uh, which gets me later into the question as they sort of back into this question of right Um, and to what extent refuge is a right itself. And here they're sort of circling around it as this either national and, and also imperial tradition and right. But they're not quite sure whether it's a tradition or a right. They're working this out. And soon they're going to get into the question of right more fully. But um, looking backwards, what happens to Anderson is quite interesting. He, he never, he rarely talks in his account. These are all abolitionists who are talking for him. Okay. Very quickly they get him to London so that they can safeguard him from another attempt to bring him back to the States. And they find that you know, it becomes better for him to not be distracted by London, so he's removed to a more rural area, and eventually he's sent to um, to Liberia because of course he's American he's not um, because uh, they think that he'll be a great leader of Liberia so this is great fanfare around providing him with a, a longer term home offshore
0: <laughs> yes. and we
1: don't know the degree to which this was his own choice. Um, uh, or not, but, but this was the, the high hope. So, again, back to this, this question of long term, certainly offshore's refuge and offshore's provision of a new life you know, seems to be um, sort of the way forward um, still. Mm-hmm. And this is despite, or actually, even in the face of ongoing difficulties by the 1850s and 60s in Sierra Leone. A point at which they start talking about Liberia a little bit more than they're talking about Sierra Leone.
0: Right, right. And it's, this also this has a, a very clear parallel to a lot to uh, what happens with a lot of abolitionists uh, who, once actually in contact with a number of former slaves. Um, have this real sense of, of disappointment um, they sort of quickly try to separate them there's a there's a case in uh, in Jamaica during apprenticeship James Williams who was taken to London and is very quickly sent back to Jamaica where he then of course disappears from the record so there's this sort of interesting parallel there not just of of, of refuge but also the these uh, the interplay between refugee relief and abolitionist liberalism in a certain way
1: right and I think the one of the main differences, because I think you're absolutely right, that this is, and I follow very much on a Catherine Hall sort mm-hmm. of what happens um, in the wake of abolitionism, is that whereas you see a turn to um, demonizing, re-demonizing, sort of questioning the whole project of abolitionism among people in Britain, you know, around, you know, Carlisle, Dickens, et cetera, right. more later on, Refugees are still the slightly different category that both fit and become problematic because that's a whole discussion happening where refugees fleeing persecution are meant to automatically be more um, deserving, right? Right. So And more heroic and more um, self-aware, right? So this is, this is a way in which we start to see distinctions that they start to draw in odd ways. Um, between fugitive slaves, people who have run actively, and liberated Africans who have just mm. been freed passively.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, in that same language of the time, trying to parse out what this means. Um, but certainly, there's a sense that that refugee thing is something distinct, even though their actions in providing refuge don't necessarily keep it as distinct as it should be. Right. Or as it it might have
0: been. Right. So the Anderson case, I think, provides us a really interesting segue into the final phase that you're tracking here. And that is the legal enshrinement of a right to refuge that is happening at the same time that these concerns about uh, what, as you as you phrase it, how much blood these people have on their hands um, also uh, are are emerging and they're emerging, um, you note, in, uh, in particular as the radical politics become the radical politics in in uh, the british isles and in the continent um become much more violent more uh more anar- uh, more anarchist movements the fenians um so can you talk about the 1870 extradition act um how, in fact, that ties to refugee relief, um, and the ways that, you know, up until this point, you note know that there hasn't really been any attempt to, to enshrine this legally, and now there is. So uh, if you could walk us through this.
1: Right. Um, I love the 1870 Act and the triumph. <laughs> it's a momentary triumph that it seems to bring with it. Yeah, so the 1870 Extradition Act, there have been other extradition acts before that, don't have the clause that I'm about to talk about okay. here, and that becomes a problem, for instance, in the Anderson case. Um, so the clause that the Extradition Act is about getting frauds back to try them, to, to deal with the ease by which criminals of all sorts can can flee, uh, can flee abroad. So an attempt to regulate that as extradition now is. The clause that they they put into the 1870 Act, very triumphantly, as a protection clause, that those who are fleeing persecution, so for for political reasons, basically, are exempted from this. So it's a political offender exemption clause, basically. And what this means is that um, refugees who have blood on their hands are exempted from this. So an Anderson or a Garibaldi mm-hmm. can still flee. But there's, of course, a question that this brings up simultaneously. Um, and that, as, he, as you gestured to, is about the, the changes on the ground that have, have, have been there for a while um, in, in many respects, but are really coming to the fore with the rise of Irish Fenianism, uh, continental communism. So this is on the happening almost at the same moment as the Paris Commune. It happens within months of this bill's passage. Um, so the question okay, what is, okay, what constitutes a political offense? Is it something that ha- can happen only in the light of day, i.e. with um, an open civil war? Or is it something like, a you know, can an assassin, you know, be safeguarded? Um, and the British are very nervous. So this is a way in which, and you know, I think in different ways, this chapter in particular, but the other chapters um, also get out of the way they sort of back into this category of, of of safety of, of a refuge or a, of, of essentially creating a category for a refugee and space for a refugee to, to have safety in Britain or with any of these, these places that they're, um, they're signing these, the extradition treaties with, um, that this is happening just as they really don't want to do it. And they're sort of backing into this, right? They do it triumphantly in 1870, but they're, all, they're very quickly trying to figure out how they can amend it to narrow that, that space in which you know, sometimes they're thinking about it in terms of, well, we want to be able to get our Irish Fenians back to try them, but we don't want to have to give you, your, you know, your continental revolutionaries because we actually do, after a lot of debate, decide that the, the, the French communards are actually political refugees, right? We're not sure at first, but you know, we, they have a political program. There. They're political refugees. And this opens a big space. And a big international space in which while Britain's leading the way in terms of creating this exemption clause, it's also the first to, to start to s- try to scale back. Um, and that's a lot of what this, especially this last portion of the book, winds up being about, is about how do we both recognize the power, the moral and the the international power of this category that we've created and that we've championed for so long, with our real unwillingness in different ways, and here it's politically, and in terms of the types of refugees elsewhere, it's in terms of resources and space, um, how do we grapple with what this means? Right. And in a way, though this is a triumphant moment for a category and in the humanitarianism that they've been, been pioneering, they're really undercutting it and, and stepping back out of the scene from, from this moment forward.
0: So uh, along with uh, along these lines, you uh, note two specific cases in which we see um, a real attempt to narrow the category of refugee um, and particularly sort of going back to these, these lines of or in one case, going back to the to the to trying to parse the distinction between um between a persecuted foreigner and simply uh, a poor or indigent immigrant. Um, And so I'll ask you to talk about these uh, two instances in turn, Uh, the first being fugitive slaves, uh, not out of uh, the Americas, but fugitive slaves in East Africa. So here we're talking about the Indian ocean where there's sort of a really different um, set of geopolitical concerns for Britain. Um, So I'll ask you to talk about that. And then next, uh, or finally, um, the refugees, uh, the Jewish refugees from uh, the Eastern European pogroms um, and uh, cu- culminating with the, sort of, with the 1905 Aliens Act um, and I think here you're really uh, again sort of almost going full circle in this way of really parsing out who who is actually a persecuted foreigner and what level of persecution is required. So if you could take those in turn. Yeah, and I
1: think I would say generally that this the question of who's a persecuted foreigner um, is consistent throughout. So in a way, it's, you know, it's full circle in terms of the, the, but also at the same time, it's a dynamic that I think goes on in most refugee crises within themselves as well as I think the fugitive slave case, um, East Africa one. As well, so but the context for for the question of um, asylum for fugitive slaves in in East Africa is a, a moment in which, and this is um, 1876. It's a moment before the British have taken over East Africa by the Imperial British East Africa Company, and then um, you know, as, as formal colonies. So, you know, so this is a moment prior to that takeover. Just to to situate that in a moment, and it's a moment in which there's still as Yes, had been the case and it would continue to be the case trying to to um, make spaces for trade trying to to um, ease relationships on the ground they don't want to um, irritate the you know certainly the Sultan of Zanzibar yes you know, so the, the the leadership in the region and certainly one way of doing that fairly quickly is providing refuge to all the legal slaves um, who are working in the Arab pearl fisheries, in particular, along the coast. Um, so the setup is the British are there patrolling for the illegal slave traffic. They, however, think, and they have a few instances in which this is happening already, but they're worried that a um legal slaves, legal domestic slaves, who are not being trafficked, but who are nonetheless near or on the water, are going to try to flee to British ships for safety and claim protection. Um, So this is more out of fear that the numbers are going to be there, but there are um, a couple of of, instances of this actually happening. So um, the question becomes, okay, well, what do we do? And this is, again, a way in which they're trying to figure out, okay, what constitutes persecution? And they do so in a couple of interesting ways in this moment that are both expected by probably by this point in the book, but also unexpected as well. The first expected way is that they they try to figure out, okay, well, what are they facing? What are they facing at home? Is this tantamount to persecution? And there's a notion at this point that domestic slavery in the Eastern context is quote-unquote less bad than the the plantation-based slavery of of the Caribbean. Uh, Whatever you will on that score. They they believe that you know that there's a there's a rationale for thinking that this is not they're not fleeing in hot blood and if they are fleeing in hot blood you know sure they can you know, they can seek refuge eventually what they they decide in the circular um, or or maybe not and this gets into what's sort of new in this case um, this this circular which at first is trying to bar all this is an Admiralty circular. Trying to bar admission of all fugitive slaves on board British ships, classically brings the metropolitan public to arms again, in that to, to rhetorical arms, uh, claiming that this is, you know cannot happen, that this is contrary to everything that is British, both British in terms of anti-slavery and British in terms of refugees. Um, the argument that the commission that gets up makes is on the one hand about the hot blood not fleeing in hot blood, but also starts to question, okay, well, what is this refuge that we're providing? And for the first time, ironically, and this is used as a means of trying to scale back. So it's used against what would be the more humanitarian argument, but they're making the humanitarian argument, the moral argument, the refuge that we're providing in Aden, Bombay, the Seychelles more particularly, uh, for these liberated Africans, uh, or uh, liberated Africans and fugitive slaves together. Um, is worse than slavery. And indeed, the, the conditions were appalling. Right. But they're making this, this, essentially this argument to say that, okay, this is a reason why we should recommit ourselves to the eventual gradual abolition of slavery writ large, but we shouldn't be on board with the, the consolation prize that we've always gone with, that this broad hat refuge that we've been providing or could be providing is really not the way Forward. So they're 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 backpedaling at the same moment as they're trying to define it. So the result is this is somewhat ad hoc. You know, this the admission that British refuge, especially in the 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 colonies are, you know, and and, and further afield, is, is not great. But a question of for whom that should be a barrier to entry, right. In itself. Um, as a reason to either renege on or fully celebrate that category, but it's not a category in the end that they're willing to jettison, even though they're trying to to whittle away who can be involved in it.
0: So the moral commitment is still is still remaining strong, even at the same time that they're sort of yeah. narrowing the category.
1: Right. Well, they, they, it's what they're hedging on is the definition of persecution.
0: Sure. Sure.
1: Persecution is the ultimate trump card uh, and remains. So, and we'll remain so through, I know we're going to get to the aliens act later. We'll remain. So in the, the sort of a a clause within the aliens act as well. Um, But at the same time, they are really working to narrow uh, what that looks like. And in a way it's, there is a universalism still inherent in the potential of who could be persecuted, but in practice, what they're doing is essentially in this case of East Africa saying, okay, well, it doesn't suffice to just be a slave. Right. Um, in a way that they had not done before.
0: Right. Um, so if we can shift to the, uh, refugees from the Eastern European pogroms, um, and this is the final chapter of, of the book, um, First of, all, I may ask why, because I think this is an interesting shift uh, in, in 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 the text. Um, why the shift to this particular group for the sort of final case of the book?
1: Right. Um, in a way, because this is where the literature that we have on refugees begins. Okay. Um, and immigration to Britain. So, if there's a much longer story of it, it's that. The British, who in the, the construct of much of the scholarship to date, um, has not really cared much about the foreigners in the midst and doesn't really do the sorts of careful stuff for parsing through um, who's a refugee and what that means you know, before this point, um, starts to care, and they start to care in a negative sense according to this literature because, of course, the Aliens Act of 1905. Bars entry for the first time to the UK for um, uh, the terms of the Act are those who don't have more than five pounds in their possession at the time of entry. So it's essentially uh, geared to eliminate the the arrival of destitute foreigners who, at this point, are Eastern European Jews. Um, so in a way, it's because of that. But I think this 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 moat that I start here or end here, I should say. Um, but also because this is a much broader story as well than just the British Isles. So in a way, it enables me to, to bring a lot of my threads together once more, that being the, the need for places for transmigration, the degree to which British refuge has come to rely on that, and ultimately so the preservation of uh, some category of, of, of refuge who, for those who are truly persecuted at the same time as they are continuing to sort of whittle away what that might mean. Um, So in terms of the the international, this is a moment in which, so as um, increasingly Eastern European Jews are coming to Britain, as well as elsewhere in Western Europe, increasingly from 1880, places like America, Canada, South Africa, Australia, places that have been classic points of transmigration for refugees who come through Britain are starting to close their own doors. And the British um, the British colony, I guess I was thinking about Canada, uh, South Africa, Australia, at this point, are controlling their own policy in this respect. So that, you know, unlike with Canada, with Anderson, the British are not going to you know, intercede on that score. They're closing, the, those, so those places are closing their doors to these, uh, these asylum seekers, basically. Because there is no place to go right. in this argument in this chapter, it really draws all the more attention to ultimately the East end of London,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which is part of the, the broader story that we do know from from the other literature, especially on, uh, on the Anglo Jewry um, and on foreigners in Britain more particularly, that the, the arguments that these, these foreigners in particular are a too foreign feeding into an anti-Semitism that's been on the ground. Again, a lot of that, that that in the past had been mitigated by transmigration in terms of other refugee groups um, is increasingly there. Worry about competition, worry about what what this is doing to the rents in the East End, the arrival of sweatshops. This is caught up in a story of changes in um in the economy and um and economic competition here. Um, because of this, the, the aliens' debates really get going. And so it's a question of, and this is why ultimately in the Aliens Act, um, despite a lot of liberal disapproval, um, they wind up they wind up barring this. There's a lot of question about okay, how much competition are they really providing? Are they a benefit? Or you know, have other immigrants' group, groups and refugee groups been a benefit to, to British society before or not? And a lot of this comes in. What comes in more particularly for me that I'm really interested in is the question of, Persecution again, right. they have a big debate in terms of talking about, okay, well again, who is a refugee? And who is a refugee? They start to articulate here in the negative that somebody fleeing for a better life, essentially economic persecution or you know, sort of economic opportunity, as they say it in Britain, cannot constitute a refugee. Right. And here's where they're going, they go into a lot of detail about, okay, well, there are other minority groups persecuted in the Russian Empire. Um there are other people better equipped than we are to provide refuge. you know a, a number of reasons that are again rationalizing the narrowing of this category, potentially the the passage of this bill as a whole. The bill as a whole though does still wind up unable to really undo that that core piece about persecution and despite its um, it 's you know extremely um harsh. Uh, decisions about who can come in does wind up pers- preserving a refugee category. Those who flee for fear of life or limb. So here's the hot blood portion mm-hmm. again. Um, can, you know, need to be righted with a second right there. They're not going to be returned or denied entry. So here, what we have here and we have this both in, we have this in the extradition act. We have this in um, The Fugitive Slave, the Circulars of the 1876 in East Africa, and again in the Aliens Act, this real ultimate right to refuge that they're articulating. Mm -hmm. For an increasingly small, you know, they're trying to whittle it down, but it's a right, Um, and it's codified in a way that, you know, even today we don't have codified. It gets undone very quickly. Right. (laughs) We have this codification of it um, that... um, is I think something, you know, really to celebrate while, while recognizing of course, all of the, the attendant debates and, and, um, and attempts at backpedaling that happen, um, along with it.
0: Right. So um as we begin to uh to wrap up I, there are uh, two questions about uh about, about the sort of broader impact of the project that I want to talk about. You've gestured towards the literature on humanitarianism, the literature on human rights. Um can you speak to how your work fits in um to into that literature? Um
1: certainly. Um I think the. The big piece, I, I often use the term humanitarianism and universal humanitarianism as opposed to, right, which I talk about in the latter portion of the book. Um, but I think it's in dialogue very much sure. with both of them. What my hope is is to show the degree to which these two are, especially in the case of refugees, very related. The question of what uh, com- what commitments take shape, how they take shape, humanitarian story and the language of the discussion of what is a right and how universal that can be um, very quickly attend to it. In terms of the literature on human rights, we tend to be very 20th century focused. Mm-hmm. Um, increasingly talking about the interwar era, but really it's you know, sort of post 45 and that this, there's this handoff between an earlier humanitarianism and a later human rights um, discussion. And, in, in human rights, some people talk about it in the 18th century as well, but there's you know, does it start there and then sort of skip over the period of empire, of what what happens here? And I think my one of my big um, hopes is that this really starts our discussion about these categories of rights and discussions of universals that we we, we talk about when we talk about human rights, um, putting that back into the story of the 19th century, of empire, of, of humanitarian commitments, Um, I think in terms of humanitarianism, we tend, although this has been um, this is sort of an oversight that's been remedied by others as well more recently, we tend to talk about um, various categories of sort of our own, be they colonial subjects, be they our own slaves, you know, be they our own citizens, and I think that's one of the reasons why um, human rights literature says, oh, okay, in the 19th century, they're talking about their own in a way, Mm -hmm. Um, Talking about this broader category of universal and everything, I think refugees forces that conversation about um, foreigners, about a broader category of people who are, you know, certainly people that the British identify with for various reasons. Be that you know, sort of uh, emerging liberal uh, discussions of what to be liberal means and what British, you know, commitment global commitments are are being made and sort of thought out. Um, but I think that this. Um, that this story brings that out more right. in a way, refugees in- inherently have to draw out these connections um, in a way that uh, we, we haven't really done
0: too much of. Right. Thank you for that. Um, so, we have for the most part avoided in this discussion uh talking about uh, the contemporary moment um uh, but of course uh this book uh came out in in October 2015 uh right at the heart of these debates over syrian refugees um and i think one of the things that was striking to me as i was reading the book um is the way that the moral commitment in this British case, seems to remain pretty firm, um, and and I was reading this at the, a at the moment in which uh, at least the American moral commitment seems to be uh, wavering. Um, not sure it exists at all. Um, so, is there d- what insights do you think your book um, or the, or the way that you're talking about refugee relief? What insights might they might might this have on the current moment, particularly with the Syrian refugee crisis? Mm-hmm.
1: I think i would i 'll speak more locally than sort of move out, mm-hmm. um, but in terms of the British commitment, I think there's a lot of hand waving at this past, and this hand waving to a firm commitment to refugees and that past has been more more on the side of a conservative right that look we've done all of this in the past um, you know we don't have to do it now or right? mm-hmm. you
0: know, let's
1: sort of you know we 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 stand for this right, even if the actions are not always you know sort of standing up with that I think in that respect, my work alongside somebody like tony Kushner's work who looks at um at the the difficulties in British memory of refugees starting from a twentieth century standpoint, but he star- he too starts with he starts with the the Jews and goes back to the Huguenots sort of. Jumping over the middle of the the nineteenth century but you know so tr- speaking well to the fact that at you know there were refugees who came in but they didn't have it very good i think my my intervention here is and my my hope is that to show that there's a much more of a conversation going on that certainly there was a commitment to refuge and that is something to be celebrated, but it's something that needs to be continually done right. That this is something that it was always in and out of the public eye. And when it was out of the public eye, it led to a lot of assumptions of how it was being done well that mm-hmm. didn't stand up to reality. Um, and, you know, and I think the same thing, you know, from 1905 forward that, you know, the moment there is an enshrined right in the Aliens Act, people think, okay, well, it's it's, it's enshrined. It's safeguarded, mm-hmm. right? That's not true either, and of course we know that today that we need constant supervision—be that of the detention centers that are set up in the asylum seeking process, be that of the, the ongoing need to to have these conversations. And I think that's that's one of the, the points that both locally and more broadly that I hope this makes that the the, the enshrining of right is not the end story it's right. in a way that got backed into and you know needs to be remembered well to be. Um, to be um, improved upon. Uh, The other piece that I've noticed a lot of discussion of in the press more recently in Britain, but but broadly, is a discussion of where Syrians, more particularly these days, where they ought to be provided with refuge and Mm -hmm. how they can be better provided in different places. This is a way in which it's very interesting and a very well-meaning refugee support side, there's a lot of talk about, well, they'll be better served in Jordan, or we, you know, this, this is not the right place, and I want to highlight with that 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 smacks of a lot of the attempts in the 19th century, certainly a bit of the 18th century, and certainly, in, we haven't talked about it, but elsewhere in the 20th century, too,
0: right.
1: outside the parameters of this particular book, that the attempt to find empty space where refugees are going to be better served. And you know, we're certainly not at a point today where we can forego any options to help with the migrant crisis and to help people who are, who are seeking refuge anywhere. So I wouldn't say, hey, okay, don't, don't take children off the table, but recognize that there's a degree often of trying to excuse oneself. And even if the people who are touting these other alternatives Aren't actually saying that. There's a, a sense of okay, well, they're better served elsewhere. So we can sort of step back, or we can step up in a, a particular way, but not deal with the harder questions about integration, the harder questions about welcoming people in our in our own midst. And I, I think the, the 19th century stories that set up well, and I think there are, there are a lot of echoes of it today too. Yeah.
0: That's absolutely fascinating and certainly much-needed much, uh, much needed, uh, point of view as we continue to grapple uh, with uh, with the Syrian refugee crisis. Um, so, Caroline, I want to thank you uh, for uh, for uh, speaking with us today. Um, and we generally ask one final question, which is, what are you working on now? Oops, you've cut out. Oh, have I?
1: Um. I am starting on a new project that looks at the legal defences of reputation. And broadly, I'm thinking of it as a, a social history of the defense of reputation. Um, and it is you know, sort of starting with a fairly... A oh, familiar question to me, given that I've been working in this gray area of a right to refuge for so long. Mm-hmm. But the question at the start of the release is: Is there, you know, quite simply, is there a right to reputation? And it comes from two areas. It comes from a, a you know, certainly the the observation that Britain has seemed to become this libel hub of of at least Europe. if not the globe, and right. they've been trying to remedy this for decades now. And there's a Um, But then also a question about, okay, what is this relationship between freedom of the speech on the one hand and a very quickly safeguarded right to reputation or right to not be demeaned within the eyes of your own community as well? Um, So while people have been thinking a lot about rights of freedom of expression, my question is, okay, well, what is this thing of, of particularly private reputation, personal reputation as it gets damaged or potentially damaged? And how do people try to safeguard
0: it? That sounds uh, fascinating. Um, so, and we're certainly uh, very much looking forward to uh, to that project. Um, so, again, Caroline, thank you so much for uh, for joining us, um, and uh, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, thank you all for uh, listening to the first episode of New Books in British Studies.
1: Thank you, Christina.
0: You've been listening to the first episode of New Books in British Studies. Thanks for joining us and see you next time.